0: Also, just a note, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper at the end of our service today. So, at the end of my message, you can prepare your hearts for that. Well, if you haven't done so, I want you to open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. You know, we started the Gospel of Mark first Sunday in, uh, in 2012. And we've been making a good clip. So, we've been going along here in nine months. We're finishing chapter 10 today, Lord willing. Um, the main message of the book of Mark is, is really twofold, though it just tells the story of Jesus. But if we can pull out some major themes here, I think one is that Jesus came as a servant. He came to teach us. He came to help us. He came to heal us. He came as a servant, but He also came as a, a Savior. He came to give His life, to redeem us, and to ransom uh, our souls. And so a good way to combine these two, might you think about the Gospel of Mark, you might want to say it's talking about the servant who saves. The servant Jesus who saves us from our our sin. In no other portion of the book of Mark do we see Jesus as a Savior even more clearly than here that we have for us this morning. Chapter 10, verses 32 through 52. And as I read it, I want for you to really look for ways in which Jesus demonstrates what a, a servant He is. There are various clues here in the text that help us with that. Mark 10, verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking on ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were fearful. And again, He took the twelve aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to Him, saying, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn Him to death and will hand Him over to the Gentiles. They will mock Him and spit on Him and scourge Him and kill Him. And three days later he will rise again. James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus, saying, Teacher, we want for you, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant that we may sit, one on your right hand and one on your left, in your glory. And Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you shall drink, and you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. But to sit on my right or on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant with James and John. Calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life, a ransom for many. Then they came to Jericho and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a large crowd, a blind man, a blind beggar named Barnabas, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the road. And when he heard that it was Jesus, the Nazarene, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many were sternly telling him to be quiet, but he kept crying out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him here. So they called the blind man, saying to him, Take courage, stand up, he is calling for you. Throwing aside his cloak, he jumped up and came to Jesus. And answering him, Jesus said, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabboni, I want to regain my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go, your faith has made you well. Immediately he regained his sight and began following him on the road. Now, this is a large chunk of Scripture here today that we're going to go through. I've been trying to go through Mark fairly quickly, and, um, but this is even a big chunk for what I've been doing. But, but I feel like it's tied together with several sentences, particularly if you look there in, in verse 36, there's a, a repeated question that is asked. When the disciples came asking something of Jesus, he said in verse 36, What do you want me to do for you? And then, if you look over in verse 51, when the blind man came up to Jesus, Jesus asked him, What do you want me to do for you? Is that not the heart of a servant? It says, What do you want me to do for you? It's what employees in retail ask. You ever done that? You're wandering through a store, you're trying to look like you have a purpose, but you don't really have a purpose, you don't know what you're looking for, or you don't want to be bothered, and, and up comes this smiling employee to you and says, hello, can I help you? And you appreciate their gesture, and sometimes you say, yes, you can help me, or sometimes you say no, or I'm, I'm okay. But what are they asking? What do you want me to do for you? Is there anything? that That's what, that's what a servant asks. That's what a... Uh, For employee in retail asks, it's what a waitress might say. You're you're sitting at your your table waiting for your food and and, and you look and you order and and the waitress comes and brings you your food and then you start eating and then about five minutes in, the waitress comes by and what does she often say? Is everything alright? What's she saying? What can I do for you? That is the posture and the question of a servant. And... Jesus asked this question on two occasions in this whole passage. And so I felt like, you know, this whole aspect of servanthood really pulls it together. Whether it's disciples, Jesus saying, what do you want me to do for you? Whether it's this blind man, what do you want me to do for you? It just shows you the posture of Jesus. He is a servant. And even that's explicitly what He says right in the heart of our passage. Verse 45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. I mean, this is the whole purpose of why Jesus came. You say, why did He come? He didn't come to be served. He came to serve. And how did He come to serve? By giving His life a ransom for many. Or you might say this, that He came to die to redeem us from our sins. Way back in Mark chapter 1, verse 1, the whole book of Mark starts with this, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And the Gospel is the good news. And the good news is this, is that Jesus Christ has come into the flesh and walked among us. He suffered on the cross for our sins and then He was raised again for our justification. That's what Jesus did in coming. He served us by suffering for us. Indeed, that's my first point this morning. If you're taking notes on the outline, Jesus suffered for us. Look at His suffering. Verse 32, "...they, they were on the road going up to Jerusalem." Well, let's just stop right there. "...going up to Jerusalem." He had spent all of chapter 10 in the region called Perea. Perea means beyond, beyond the Jordan, to the east of the Jordan, and he was ministering there. But now he's crossed over the Jordan, and he's come into Jericho, and he's on his way up to Jerusalem. When we're talking about up, we're talking up. We're talking about a 20 mile stretch of road. We're talking about 300, 3,500 feet in altitude. And Jesus is coming up where he is to die. His disciples knew that He was ready to die. They knew that His end was near ever since uh, Jesus revealed Himself at Caesarea Philippi when they took that little retreat up there in the north. He exposed that what His plan was that He was going to suffer many things and eventually be killed. But this is the first time in Mark that we see that He's going to be killed in Jerusalem. As it says right there on the road up to Jerusalem. It's appropriate for Jesus to die there for in Jerusalem is where they kill the prophets and stone those who are sent to Her. And I want you to notice that Jesus here isn't being dragged to the city as if He didn't really want to go. He's not the little child kicking and, streaming and screaming in protest of going to the dentist. He's not the, the manager of a business who reluctantly has to tell an employee That they've been laid off. On the contrary, Jesus is eager and He's willing to go up to Jerusalem. Look what it says in verse 32. They're on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking on ahead of them. I believe there was a skip and a step. He was eager to accomplish His work in Jerusalem. If you think about it, it's an amazing thing, right? I mean, Here's Jesus going up to die. He's going to the execution chamber and He's going there with a skip and a step. Now, I don't know this for a fact. I didn't research this at all. But I would imagine if someone is on death row and the day and time of their execution has come, they're not quick about their steps down that hallway into that lethal room. They kind of slowly prod. In fact, uh, I would imagine that over the years there have probably been those who've resisted and have been dragged, need to have been dragged by the officers ready to take them in. They've been strapped in against their will, probably oh, pushing some of them are resigned, but many of them probably resist. But I don't think any of them skip down the hall like I'm going to my execution. But Jesus, that's what He did. He was on ahead of the disciples. And, and that just amazed me. And not only us, not only me is amazed, it, it amazed them. Look at there, verse 32. And they were amazed. And those who were following were fearful. Jesus, I think, amazed His disciples and and gave them some terror as well if, if they were going along. But Jesus detected their apprehension. And then I think uh, he said, okay, we're going to have a talk. So let's talk again. So he took the twelve aside, began to tell them what was going to happen to them. And here's what he said. Okay, guys. So I get in his huddle. Here's a plan. Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man would be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death, hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. This is the fourth time that Jesus says these words. First time, Mark chapter 8, verse 31. You can turn back there and I encourage you, if you're marking your Bibles, it's a good thing to do. Write a little number one here, 831. Right after Peter confessed that Jesus was the Christ, he began to teach them. Right here is when he began that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days, rise again. The second time came after the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus was transfigured before Peter, James, and John. So they were coming down from the mountain. Verse 9 of chapter 9 says, put a number two here, it'd be good. He gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. There's the resurrection. There we're thinking about what, what exactly this means. And Jesus says in verse 12 then, how is it written that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? So, that one's not as clear, but it still is there. A, a resurrection is going to take place, but He needs to suffer first. Number three comes in chapter 9, verse 31. Shortly after casting the demon out of the, the little boy that the disciples couldn't do, they went through Galilee. And he was teaching his disciples, verse 31, and telling them the Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he's been killed, he will rise three days later. And the fourth time, of course, comes in our text. Chapter 10, verse 32 and 34. Now, what's interesting about it is every time that Jesus says this, the disciples are confused. Uh, Back in in chapter 8, right after Jesus said, chapter 8, verse 31, he began to teach them, Son of Man must suffer these things. Verse 32, stating the matter plainly. Okay, listen, we're going to go up. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die and rise again. Stating it plainly. What did Peter do? Peter took him aside, verse 32, and he rebuked him. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. He rebuked him because he didn't understand. I mean, he understood on an earthly level in some regard, but didn't want it and and didn't realize this was God's plan from the beginning. After the Transfiguration, chapter 9, verse 10, we see that these disciples seized upon the statement about rising from the dead and, and they were asking and questioning about what this rising from the dead means. Eventually, then they asked about Elijah because they were confused. After casting the demon out of the boy, they did it says in chapter 9, verse 32, they did not understand this statement and they are afraid to ask Him. They didn't understand. Even four times, they didn't understand. But Jesus knew... There was confusion in the minds of the disciples, but there was crystal clarity in the mind of Jesus. See, the sufferings of Jesus didn't come by accident. Jesus knew full well what was going to take place in Jerusalem. He knew full well that He was going to die there. He didn't die because of some political ploy gone astray. He didn't die because of poor timing in His revolution. He, he didn't die because of some unforeseen timing in His circumstances. No, His death was according to the predestined will of God as revealed in the Scriptures. And in fact, when Luke records his words here of Jesus, he says, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem and all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. He'll be handed over to the Gentiles, mocked, mistreated, spit upon, etc. Jesus knew full well this is a plan of God. In this way, He was serving us. Serving us by suffering for us. His death upon a cross was for us. You need to catch this. When Jesus went to the cross... He went there for us. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. For I delivered to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He died for us, for our sins. His suffering was in our place that we might live. He suffered so that we might not suffer in that way. It wasn't easy. He wasn't in it for Himself. But as His role as a servant. He willingly faced that. He suffered for us and thereby showing that He is a servant. Second, The second point. Jesus endures with us. I get this point from the interaction with Jesus and James and John. And it really is amazing here. They come to Jesus and ask Him this ridiculous question. And then they make this outlandish claim. And in all of it, Jesus was patient with His disciples. He endured with His disciples. Even when they were seeking greatness, when they should have been seeking servanthood, Jesus never laughed at them. He was patient with them. He was kind with them, enduring their foolish ways. And how different that is than a king. Imagine yourself being a king and your servant doesn't do as you bid. What happens oftentimes with those servants? They may lose their jobs they may lose their life. Do you remember when Pharaoh was furious with his two officials, the chief cupbearer and the baker? What did he do to them? you remember, kids? He was mad at the, the chief cupbearer and the baker. Do you remember what he did with them? What did he do, Stephanie? He put them both in prison. He was angry with them. and put them in prison. But Jesus didn't imprison His disciples who were in some regard serving Him. He was patient. And, and remember... Putting them in confinement, the baker lost his head. He was hanged because the king was disappointed with him. But it's different with Jesus and the disciples. When they're foolish, he endures our weaknesses. He's patient with our weaknesses, and thereby he demonstrates he's come to serve us and help us in our weaknesses. And that's, that's kind of the thrust of what I got out from here because He's really serving them. He's really helping them. He's just not rebuking them. Let, catch the dialogue here. Verse 35. James and John, two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want for you to do whatever we ask of you. Isn't that what your children say to you sometimes? Dad, will you do what I ask you to? Dad, yeah, promise first. Promise you'll do this. Nathan, you're laughing. Have you done that before? Probably tried. He just rolled his eyes. You guys didn't see he rolled his eyes. Guilty as charged, right? It's a childish sort of way. And maybe they were wanting to hear what Herod said. Whatever you ask of me, I will give to you up to half my kingdom. And the dancing daughter pleased Herod. Whatever you ask, I'll give up to half the kingdom. And maybe they were asking for this. Will you tell us? Will you give us what we want? Well, up to half. But Jesus knew their manipulation and He just didn't try to play games, ignore the tactic, and then said this great servant question, what do you want me to do for you? Just trying to get down to business. And it is interesting there, he gives hope. It's not like he says no right away. No, I can't do that. He gives hope and he's going to entertain some dialogue here. He's willing to help them. He said, what do you want me to do? And they said to him, verse 37, grant that we may sit, one on your right and one on your left, in glory. Jesus could have laughed in their face. Yes, and <laughs> yes. You don't have any idea what you're asking for. Could have mocked them, could have made fun at them, but he didn't. Catch the magnitude of this request. It's like going to vice president of Fortune 500 company and just asking him, maybe your friends with some big... Can I be a vice president too? Can I sit right with you? Or maybe it's Asking the President of the United States for a place in his cabinet. But, but this, is, this is far greater. The President of the United States is a, a servant of the Lord. Case in point Ezra chapter 1. What's the king's name? Cyrus. Servant of the Lord. See, at the right hand of Jesus, left of Jesus, would allow John and James to counsel Jesus on how he's going to run his kingdom. Jesus doesn't need such help. The the request was outlandish. I don't think it's any accident that James and John were the one asking this question. They were privileged to see Jesus in His glory in the Mount of Transfiguration. They saw His glory. They knew what a bit of what it was about. And I think they said, "We we want that Jesus." In fact, even look at how it says it here. We, We want to sit on the right and the left in your glory. Probably referring back to the the glory of the Mount of Transfiguration. And maybe they thought that God's kingdom works on the basis of political favors or appointments. You scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. But that's not how God's kingdom works. Now, that's not to say that there's not a way to the top of God's kingdom. There is a way to the top of God's kingdom. But the way up is down. Down. So it's always been for God's purpose. Before Moses led the people out of slavery, he first had to go down forty years in Midian. Before David was able to rise to the throne, he had to endure constant attacks of the jealous king. And when Paul was tempted to be lofty and exalted himself, God gave him a thorn in the flesh. And when Jesus came, he was humbled first. See what's in case for us, we want to be high and exalted in the kingdom, we need to take the low path as the way to get high. In the kingdom, Jesus, although existed in the form of God, right, the highest being in the universe, the highest being outside of the universe, God Himself, He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but He emptied Himself. Taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of man, being found in appearance as a man, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So, so He's high, exalted, comes low to the lowest low, dying on the cross, for this reason also God highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. But, but do you see the reason why Jesus was exalted so high? Because He took the path to greatness in the kingdom is low of low. In fact, it says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 9, when He went to death and death on the cross, it says, for this reason God highly exalted Him. The reason God exalted Him high is because He went lower than the low. You want to sit the right or left of Jesus? Then experience depth of suffering with Jesus. As one commentator said, a request for glory is a request for suffering. And it's what Jesus was getting at right here in verse 38. You do not know what you're asking. I mean, this is too large for you. And then He says, trying to work through them patiently about what it's going to take if they're going to sit there, if they want to be there. And notice also, Jesus in no way dissuaded him. He didn't say that's a bad request. He said, but you don't understand the request is what He was saying here. And then He says, are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Are you able to be baptized with a baptism with which I am baptized. With these words, the cup and baptism. He's just trying to uh, allude to his sufferings. Remember in the cup? He talked about that in the garden of despair. He would. He said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for You. Remove this cup from Me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what You will. What's the cup? The cup is the cup of death. It's right? the cup when God's going to pour out His wrath upon His Son. And the baptism. Baptism just means immersion, right? Are you able to be immersed with the thing I'm going to be immersed with? What's you going to be immersed with? He's going to be immersed with the suffering and the death that's upcoming. He brought these to these disciples. Can you drink the cup? Can you be baptized? And because if you want glory, suffering's necessary. A request for glory is a request for suffering. And yet they had clueless confidence. Here in verse 39, they said to Him, we are able... And Jesus could have just laughed at them. are able? What are you talking about? There's no way. Well, he said, okay. There is a way. You shall drink the cup, and you shall be baptized with the baptism which I am baptized. So, you're going to suffer. You're going to be, be baptized and immersed in this way. But, and then he says, I can't give this to you. To sit at my right and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those to whom it has been prepared. Now, these words Jesus put James and John back where they needed to be. They wanted status and Jesus gave them suffering. But in giving them suffering, He gave them the path they so eagerly desired. And they got suffering. John was the second martyr of the church. Stephen died first, was stoned to death. And in Acts chapter 12, we read how James was put to death with the sword. Less than ten years after this statement, he was dead. Killed by the sword. John suffered as well. He spent his final years on Patmos that destitute island because of the, test, the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Now, when we think island, we don't think Hawaii or Tahiti. We think Alcatraz. It's a terrible prison sort of place. It wasn't a great place to be. James and John drank the cup of suffering and you know what? They received some measure of glory. We read in Revelation 21 in the New Jerusalem. It speaks about the names of the two men. These two along with all other twelve disciples, are inscribed upon the twelve foundation stones of the city. Other than that, we don't know of any area of prominence which they will have in heaven. Maybe we'll know. Maybe someday when you're in heaven, you can look to Jesus and then if you can bear to do this, take your eyes off of Jesus and look to the right or to the left of Jesus and see if maybe John and James are there. My suspicion is they're not because God has declared, I will not give My glory to another. If their seed is right in his left, their seed to the far right of Him and the far left of Him. Not counseling Jesus in any way. But you notice how patiently Jesus endured the disciples. Talking about the scheme of suffering. Enduring with them. Telling them what suffering is about. How to be a servant. Alright, well, He suffered for us. He endures with us. Thirdly, He teaches us. And here, He teaches us about suffering. Teaches us about what it means to be a servant. It's all set up by the comment in verse 41. Hearing this, the ten began to be indignant, to feel indignant with James and John. Well, James and John weren't the only ones who were wanting the glory. They were simply the ones who were crafty enough to think of this way, to ask Jesus for it. They were the ones bold enough to actually ask Him. Although maybe not so bold. Remember in another account it speaks about how actually they asked their mother to ask Jesus for them. So maybe they lacked a little boldness as well. But the dynamic was still there. And the other ten disciples were angry. Felt betrayed. Felt jealous. Felt that he'd broken trust maybe. Because they had discussed before who was the greatest. Chapter 9 verse 34. On the way they discussed with one another which of them was the greatest. But John and James were tricky enough to ask and to try to get there ahead of them. And they, they became indignant. And Jesus sensed a need once again to go over this with them. And so he gathers them together again. He says, okay guys, let's try to set this straight. Let's talk about servanthood. You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great men exercise authority over them, but it is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Here here Jesus gives forth teaching about what true servanthood is about he already had a similar conversation with His disciples when they talked about greatness. Chapter 9, verse 34. He sat down with them, called the twelve, and said to them, here it is, same, same flavor of teaching. Here in our text, it's expanded a little bit more. But in chapter 9, verse 35, same thing. If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Even, chapter 10, verse 31, same idea, but many who are first will be last and last first. Talking about... If you want to be great in the kingdom, be last here on earth. It's like they can't get it through their thick skulls. They need to be told several times. Now, I can understand that. Can you? Difficult things are need to be repeated again and again, especially in this case, it's counterintuitive. Everything within us thinks the opposite. We think we want to be prominence, what do we do? We get to be the first in line. We want to have success in our company and then we just, we're bold out there just showing off what we can do, what we've done. Assert ourselves. It's the way of the world. It's the way the world seeks to lead. Even as it says there right in verse 42, you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. These are governmental rulers just exercising their sovereign control. And, and that's a way to get ahead in life in many ways is just to be brutal on your way up. Uh, I've not read the biography that uh, I think Walter Isaacson wrote about Steve Jobs. He's just a ruthless man. Ruthless and mean and cruel and demanding and awful guy to be around. But what happened was he got up to the top, lording it over, firing people in an instant, telling you how bad they are, just getting up right up to the top. That's how it works today. Right? If you're a boss in an environment, you can you can rant and rave and yell and intimidate the person to do what you want and maybe get results cuz they fear their job using your authority to squeeze what's required of them and people of the world are boastful and arrogant whatever is in their power to get their way to the top and it often works but you know what it often backfires as well i remember reading an account about how uh, many of the leaders in corporations are there because they're humble servants who really care about people. So even God's ways do work here upon the earth. But there are times when this authoritarian method works and times where it backfires. A uh, Case in point, when Solomon died, Rehoboam, his son, gained the kingdom. And though he received counsel from the elders to lighten the load... He refused to hear them, told the people, My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. The result was he lost the ability to lead. Ten of the twelve tribes defected. They went under the leadership of Jeroboam, who was no better. Split the kingdom in two. And all of a sudden, he didn't have the control and power that he was hoping for. But it's how the world leads. Power and intimidation. But Jesus says the opposite. Verse 43 It is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to be great is to be servant of all. We are to be slaves of all. Greatness comes through sacrificial, selfless service. It's just the way to greatness. You say, well, what kind of sacrificial service are you talking about? Well, I remember Ivan and I went on our 10-year anniversary trip. Her parents gave us a cruise to Alaska. First time we'd ever been on a cruise, haven't been on a cruise since, was about 10 years ago. We've been married for 20 years. And a cruise, the whole idea of a cruise is so that you feel pampered. They serve your food, utter relaxation, whatever you want, six-course meal every night. When you get on the boat, all you do is tag your luggage and mysteriously it finds its way into your room. Every night I remember just the the creases on the bed were amazingly sharp and perfect. I I remember even they had this little chocolate that they put on the sheets before we went to bed at night. Just pampering us. And it's the idea. Fixing food exactly what you want. Activities for your pleasure. Whatever you want. That's the idea of a cruise. And think about it. Jesus went across on the cruise. And who's the greatest person on the ship? Is it the captain up there? And who would Jesus say? You know what? let's 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 walk down here into the galley. yeah I see these places where these people live. Yeah, that person right there is working for twenty dollars a day that's that's the greatest person here on the ship. Not the ones who can afford the luxury, but the ones who are are serving. that's God's way. The way up is down. The poor in spirit are those who are rich in the kingdom. It's those who mourn who will be happy. it's those who hunger who will be satisfied it's the persecuted who will be blessed it's the broken heart that's the healed heart it's the contrite spirit that will be the rejoicing spirit it's the repenting soul which is the victorious soul to have nothing is to possess all and to bear the cross is to wear the crown and to give is to receive that's how it is in God's kingdom it's a hard lesson to learn the disciples have to learn a couple of times we need to learn a couple of times Peter learned this lesson though when he counseled the spiritual leaders who was persecuted, scattered churches. He said, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. Nor yet is lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. 1 Peter 5, verses 2 and 3. See effective spiritual leaders are those who demonstrate their heart To others by loving people and serving people. And that's how you influence people in the kingdom for the kingdom of God. I don't care whether it's a spiritual leader, whether it's someone in the congregation, whether you're just a Christian or some, you just love people and serve people and you will make great influence in the kingdom of God. I've been encouraged in recent days just by talking to several of you who are reaching out to unsaved friends or acquaintances. And you're just serving them and you're just you're loving them and you're pointing them to Jesus. And, and the way you're going to make inroads to them is not by banging them on the head with all their errors of their ways. The, they need to know their sin. But oftentimes, people like that know their sin. They just need to be directed towards Jesus and, and demonstrate what a life living for Jesus looks like. And let God make that attractive to your friends who don't know Christ. Because Jesus showed us the way. He didn't just say, oh, you, you, you guys serve and serve me. No, verse 45, right? The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And to give His life a ransom for many. He showed the ways. Not merely He told His disciples what to do, He demonstrated for them. See, the Lord of the universe didn't come to enjoy the pleasures of the earth by suntanning on Hawaii, served around by His Disciples living a life of luxury. No, he came to earth to serve as a servant. He was a servant in his life, and he was actually a servant in his death. He didn't say, Do as I say and not as I do. Rather, what did he say? He said, Do as I do, follow me. I told you before and I need to tell it again my dad's common statement to me was Steve I'll never ask you to do anything that I'm not willing to do. And even he added I'll never ask you to do something which I haven't done first or I'm not willing to do. That's the heart of a servant. Parents as you deal with your children I would encourage you to do that. Son or daughter I'm not asking you to do anything that I haven't done first I'm not willing to do first. You quoted that to me this week, I think, didn't you? It was yes, <laughs> a while ago. It was like Friday, I think it was a while ago, right? He felt like, you know what, that isn't it? You need to be willing to do whatever you tell me to do, so kids, that might be a good thing you can talk your parents about, maybe um, but parents set the model so that that is. Beyond a shadow of a doubt, true. Or if you're a boss at work, do that with your, those who under you. Or do that with those who are influenced. Whatever you're around, don't tell others to do what you're not doing yourself. Or what you're not willing to do. Or have done before. Because that's what, what Jesus did. Jesus does not ask you to do anything that He has not done first or that He is not willing to do. Think about that. Now, there are specific circumstances of what, what we face with in life, for sure. But, but I would contend that everything that Jesus commands us to do, He did. The commandments. Jesus kept all the commandments. He's, he's telling you to obey and submit to Him. Jesus shared and talked with people of love. With love. And He's telling us to do that as well. He was kind and compassionate and gracious. So when He tells us to have our hearts filled with compassion and grace and kindness toward others. That was Jesus. Yet there were times when He was stern and rebuked. There were times where He confronted. and Certainly, He's just telling us to act like, like He was. He is an example, but His example also is just even in His death. But think about His life, what He did. As a servant, he went out and he healed others. He cast out demons, made the blind to see, the lame to walk, deaf to hear. Now, he did things we can't do, but we can approximate all those, right? It's just helping people, improving their situation in life. Nobody ever left the presence of Jesus with a disease that wasn't cured. It says in Matthew 4, verse 23 that Jesus healed all diseases and all sicknesses among the people. When people came to Jesus, He healed everyone. Just, when they are faith healers and people leave unhealed, it shows that they're not true faith healers because Jesus healed everybody. Well, He was our example of which He was betrayed. He gave a great example of His disciples as a, as a servant. Phil read this for us, right? John 13 He was there in the upper room his disciples were all there and he's the one that got up from supper he's the one that laid aside his garments he's the one that took a towel girded himself with that got down on his feet and starts has his knees and starts washing the feet of the disciples even the most dirty scummy yucky thing Jesus did So kids when your parents ask you to clean the bathroom know that Jesus washed the disciples' feet. It's probably a yuckier job than cleaning the bathroom. It's the lowest task that Jesus could have done. Washing another's feet was only for the slaves of the house. Well, I'm not going to do that. That's below me. (laughs) Nothing was below Jesus. And... And in terms of your status, of who his being was here, and nothing was below him. And if our being is here, being human, how low should we go? Hear the words of Jesus: Truly, truly I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than one who is sent to him. If you know these things, you are blessed. If you do them. If I, then the Lord your, and Teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. It's not just a matter of knowing what Jesus says. It's a matter of being a servant in all ways. Whether it's a leader in a church, whether it's a mom in a home, Whether it's a little girl and child or a little boy, we are all called to serve one another. Well, not only was Jesus a servant in his life, he was a servant in death, dying for our sins. Jesus demonstrates the ultimate service and sacrifice. He died to redeem his people from their sins. That's what verse 45 ends with, right? He, son of man in life didn't come to be served, but to serve into life. And then in his death, he still is serving as he gave his life a ransom for many. When you hear the word ransom, you often think rightly of a kidnapper who's been taken hostage, right? Demanding some money for release. Well, in a very weird way, our sins have held us hostage, and maybe you know people like that who are just caught in their sins and their, their sins are, are, are wrapping them all up and they're just consumed with this and they're tied up there. And, and what Jesus has to do is come and pay that ransom to deliver you from your sins. And that's what Jesus did upon the cross. He paid the ransom price. His blood freed us from our sins. His blood redeemed us from the penalty of death. And it's through His death that we are now free to serve. So, yes, His life, but His death is what actually will empower us in our life to serve. That was the teaching of Jesus. Jesus suffered for us. Jesus endures with us in our foolishness, our ignorance, our understanding, misunderstanding. He teaches us and finally He takes time for us. Now, we're going through this quickly here in verse 46 through 52 so we can celebrate the Lord's Supper. But He took time for us. You know, one of the most difficult things for a busy person to do is take time for other people. When schedules are chalked top full, it's very hard to stop those things with so many things going on, so many things to do, so many things distracting at the moment. It's hard just to focus on an individual and to serve them. And yet, that's what Jesus did. It's kind of the thrust. I view this healing of this blind man to be an indication of how he served people. I mean, just keeping up the same servanthood theme because even he says right in verse 51, what do you want me to do for you? He's just serving this blind man So he came to Jericho, verse 46. He was leaving Jericho with his disciples. A large crowd, a blind beggar named Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, was sitting on the road. So picture the scene. Crowds all around, pressing all around him. Jesus is on a quest, right? He's got to get up to Jerusalem. And he's on a time frame because he knows that he wants to enter Jerusalem Palm Sunday. And he knows he's, he's got to get there, but he can't be delayed or distracted. Timing is of the essence. And yet, there's a distraction. A, a blind beggar named Bartimaeus, or you might call him Blind Bart for short. Now, Matthew tells us that there were two blind men here. Mark only focuses on one of them. He's a real man, Bartimaeus. His father was Timaeus. If you wanted to look him up, probably after Jesus died, you could have probably gone to Jericho and said, does Timaeus live here? Yeah, yeah, where's where's his son? There's Bart. And he would have been able to see how he functions rightly. Now we see, but here was when Bart, verse 47, heard that it was Jesus of Naz- the Nazarene, he began to cry out say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many were sternly telling him to be quiet. But he kept crying out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Surely Bartimaeus had heard of Jesus before. He'd heard of all of what Jesus had done throughout the land. He'd heard of how he'd given sight to the blind. He'd heard about how He'd given hearing to the deaf, how He'd given walking to the lame. And, and here He was. Here was this man that, that was coming across this path. And even as he said, Son of David, He's identifying Him as the, the Messiah, right? the One who's coming. He's, he's identifying Him rightly and, and pleading with His one opportunity to see Jesus. He just hears of Him and cries out and seeks to grab Jesus with His voice. He wasn't going to let this pass. He's going to cry out for mercy, and and even when trying to suppress, no, 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 you don't, you don't, shh, don't bother him. He cried out all the more and all the more. Son of David, have mercy on me. This was his repeated cry. It says in verse 48, he kept crying. He kept crying. The imperfect tense, which is a, a past action that he continually did. So, how many times did he cry out? Well, we know at least twice, but. If he kept crying, my sense is, maybe three times, maybe ten times, many twenty times. Maybe it was like that relentless child that's just not going to stop asking. I have a child like that in my home. A child who wants to buy herself an iPod Touch. And um, she's resolved in her heart and her mind just to ask Dad every day. Right? It comes every day. Dad, can I get an iPod touch? Dad, can I get an iPod touch? Dad, can I... Sometime during the day. I think in the past three weeks, there hasn't been a day when you haven't asked me, Hannah. So like this man, he's just, Son of David, have mercy on me! Son of David, have mercy on me! He's just going to be relentless, just asking and begging. And Jesus then shows the heart of the servant. Verse 49, he stopped and said, call him here. So they called the blind man, saying to him, take courage, stand up, he's calling for you. What encouraging words, right? Finally, he took notice and he's calling, I'm, I'm going to have my chance, face to face with Jesus. Throwing aside his cloak, he jumped up and came to Jesus. And, and there it is, Jesus, a servant, taking time with his blind man. Now, you've got to think of what a blind beggar is like. Now, if someone is begging on the street, if they're dressed in nice clothes, sitting there asking for money, how, what are they going to be good at that or bad at that? If I go downtown Rockford today, right, and whatever, put out a baseball cap dressed as I am, looking for money... I don't know how successful I am, but the one who's dirty and disheveled and unkept and stinky, perhaps there's some compassion. There's a reason he needs something. And so, I don't think this is one of the most beautiful men, handsome of men. He was probably an ugly, unkept, clothed in rags, dirty beggar, begging for mercy. But how typical this is, right? Jesus will go to low people who need help and give them the time of day. And he asked the question of this man, what do you want me to do for you? Jesus is willing to help this man. And he wants to know what this man wants. He's kind of drawing him out a little bit. And verse 51, the blind man said, Rabboni, I want to regain my sight. And Jesus said to him, go, your faith has made you well. And immediately he regained his sight and began following him on the road. He gave him exactly what He wanted. Because He was asking for something reasonable as opposed to the disciples. He didn't give them what they wanted. Jesus doesn't always give us what we request. But if there's a genuine need, there's genuine faith, there's a genuine love, He often is disposed, I think, to give us what we need. But notice about this man. He, he believed that Jesus had the power to heal. Why else would you cry out so loudly as He did? Why would you cry out so repeatedly unless you believe that Jesus could really help me? He was willing to follow Jesus because, verse 52, he began following him on the road. I mean, such was his heart that he was going to follow Jesus. That's it. Think about what a great picture this is of salvation. Here was a man who knew his need. He was blind, he needed his sight. Here was a man who couldn't gain his sight by himself. Here was a man who knew who could help him. He knew that Jesus could help him. Here was a man who pleaded the mercy of Jesus. He knew that he wasn't going to get his sight back because of any merit. Look at how good I am, Jesus! I deserve to have my sight back. He didn't do that. He just pleaded mercy. This man was willing to do whatever it took to gain his sight. Again and again, crying out, crying out, crying out. Just beseeching and pleading and begging with the Lord. This man professed his belief that Jesus could heal him in verse 51. I want to regain my sight. I, I know you can give me sight, so please give me sight. He was healed by his faith. Jesus connects his faith with his healing. Go, your faith has made you well. The man followed Jesus immediately. And I just this is how we come to Jesus. We see our need, that we have sinned before a righteous and holy God, and we know that we can't solve our problem ourselves because there's no way we can atone for our sins in them ourselves. And we know, though, that that Jesus has the answer to cure us of this sin problem. And so we come to Jesus, we plead His mercy. We don't plead anything in of ourselves. We plead just that He would be merciful to us. Furthermore, we're unashamed of trusting in Jesus to forgive. And this beggar was totally unashamed. He he, he would cry out and cry out and cry out make a spectacle of himself. I'm not ashamed of the Gospels, what Paul says. We ought to be unashamed that we're believing in Jesus, trusting Him for forgiveness. And we profess our faith in Jesus. I believe You. Lord, yes, You can heal me. And through faith, by God's grace, through the mercy of Christ, we're healed. And once healed, what do we do? We willingly follow our Savior. Now, all those things are are just true of the Gospel, right? Just... Seeing our need. We can't do it. Jesus can do it. We plead His mercy. We trust in Him to do it. He does it. He gives us joy and we follow Him. Is that you? Are you like this blind man? Can you relate? Maybe on a spiritual realm. But Jesus is a servant there. Waiting to heal. Waiting to help. And we simply need to plead His mercy upon us. I trust that's where many of you are, most kids, I hope that you just understand. Just plead the mercy of Jesus; He's the only way. It's really what it's appropriate time we have to celebrate the the Lord's Supper. Really rejoice in the suffering of Jesus on our behalf. Right? Turn over to Luke Mark fourteen. Here Jesus speaks about how He's going to. Serve. This was the Passover meal. It says in, in Mark 14, verse 22, While they were eating, He took some bread, and after blessing it, He broke it, and He gave it to them. And it says, Take it, this is My body. And when He had taken a cup and given thanks, He gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And He said to them, This is My blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I'll never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. This is my last meal. And we know from other accounts that Jesus tells His disciples to do this and remember it to Me. And as often as we do this, we should do it to remember of Jesus. And that's what we're doing. We're just remembering how Jesus was our servant, dying upon the cross for our sins, right? We, we take the bread like He tells us to do. That's symbolizing His body. We... We drink from the cup, as Jesus told us to do, as symbolizing His blood of the covenant. And what's the covenant? The covenant is you're going to forgive those who trust in Him. He's going to give us new hearts. Ezekiel 33. Jeremiah 31. And so we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper as we always do. And just if your heart isn't like this blind beggar, like blind Bart, that sees your need, no, you can't deal with it. Only God can forgive it you've pleaded God's mercy, you've believed and trusted in Him, He has forgiven you your sin, and you're willing to follow Him, then then eat and take. But if not, perhaps you need to confess your sin. Maybe there's something that's holding you back. Confess your sin. And take with joy. This is a time of celebration. We always talk about celebrating the Lord's Supper is what we do. So it's a time to really rejoice in the forgiveness that we have in Jesus through this. Um, eating and drinking let's let's pray Father we do thank you for Jesus that he came as a servant for our sins as Charles Wesley said and can it be that I should gain an interest in my Savior's blood how is it that you O oh Lord the sovereign of the universe would come and die for us prayer lord you'd help us to feel the weight of that then the weight of the the joy and gratitude that we ought to have in experiencing forgiveness of sins we ought to go away with a skip in our step like a blind man who has been healed so lord i pray as we eat and drink i pray we would do as paul told us in 1st corinthians 11 to examine ourselves just look at our hearts and plead your mercy god that's all we're doing here today just eating and drinking as You tell us to do, and pleading Your mercy as You model for us, as You told us to do. And I pray, O oh Lord, that You would give us the joy of salvation uh, from knowing that You died for us and becoming a, our servant for us. We thank You and love You in Jesus' name. Amen.